was waiting for Karen to close the door because she's part of my introduction. <laughs> she hates that. But, uh, you know, when we're out and about downtown Milan, in, invariably we always end up shopping um, because we always pass a shoe store. And I don't know, I don't know if, if, if this is a thing for most women, but anyway. Um, so we end up in a shoe store and then maybe, maybe later on a dress store or later on another shoe store and then maybe uh, an accessories store, but, but then later on maybe another shoe store. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. I, I want to say that uh, my wife is very frugal and uh, uh, I'm happy to have her. So I'm just poking a little fun. Well, I, I started that just really to get to what I wanted to say, which is when we go shopping together, I usually just stand outside. I don't know what you men do. Um, when she goes in, I, I, I stand outside, I lean against the wall, and I just watch people go by. I mean, that's, that's what I do. And uh, I don't just watch them go by. I don't, I don't know if you like me in this regard, but I wonder about them. I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder, I wonder what they're hoping. I wonder what they're dreaming about. I wonder what their greatest aspiration um, is or might be. I wonder what they think is their purpose for walking around on the planet. I wonder if they're thinking at all about ultimate reality and spiritual truth, or if they're simply living a totally self-absorbed, earthbound existence. You know, just I'm just living out that those 80 years. I know I, I looked at life expectancy this week, and it's different in every country. But in the West, we're looking at 78, 82 years, and I just wonder. When I watch somebody go by, I wonder, if, are they just living for these 80 years? And I think, what a tragedy. Amen? What a tragedy to simply live for this world and this life. In uh, the book entitled Sacred Romance, John Eldridge recounts a story that Annie Dillard had written up in an essay. This is what Annie Dillard writes about a 19th century, uh, some 19th century explorers uh, as they were in search of the North Pole. This is, this is how she describes what they took. Each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two- to three-year voyage. Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for 12, a 1,200-volume library a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china place settings, cut glass goblets, and sterling silver flatware. The expedition carried no special clothing for the, for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. Years later, Inuit Eskimos came across frozen remains of the expedition uh, the men dressed in their finery, pulling a lifeboat laden with place settings of sterling silver and some chocolate. 
And when I watch these people walk by, I think of that. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of people are just like this expedition, utterly clueless about what is truly essential for this expedition that is called life. Of the pole expedition, Eldridge writes, their naivete is almost beyond comprehension. Do you agree? I think that's a gross understatement. <laughs> their naivete is without question beyond comprehension. In fact, there's some insanity here, in my view. Their actions were utterly absurd in regard to reality. And when I watch these people walk by, I just wonder, are they in tune with reality? God's reality. Not, not man-made reality. Not, not uh, man-made culture. But are they in tune with God's reality? I fear that many go through life with a very naive and false view of the world and what follows. Just wrong. Simply wrong. All of their presuppositions, all of their assumptions are wrong. They're simply wrong. They're not sure what's essential, what's important, what's necessary. Willfully, I would say, oblivious to ultimate truth, living in kind of a dream world, an illusion. You might even say it, a hallucination. I watch people go by and I just wonder how many people are just like that North Pole expedition. They've gotten everything wrong because their presuppositions are wrong. Their worldview is wrong. They've planned wrong. They've prepared wrong. They think wrong. And because of that, they're living wrong. They, they're, they've stocked up on stuff and, and they're dragging it behind them. They're just dragging their stuff along behind them. A lot of non-essentials. Things they don't need, really. But because the herd tells them they need it, because the world says we need, we need this toy, we need that toy, we need this, we need that, we have to go have one just because everybody else has one. You know what Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It seemed right to these explorers to the North Pole to ensure that they had a library, an organ, uh, glass uh, goblets and, and sterling silver, but they were wrong. They didn't need any of that stuff. How many of you, possibly, but for sure your friends, your family, how many think like that? How many are completely wrong about reality? Ultimately, Without Jesus Christ, we're wrong about everything. Amen? If we don't know Him, if we don't love Him, if we don't worship Him, if we aren't obeying Him, if we aren't serving Him in His body, we've not understood why He's left us on the planet. We've not understood why we're here. 
We've gotten distracted. You know, we've got all our stuff and we're dragging our stuff. God could care less about your stuff. God's not impressed with your stuff. God's going to ask you, did you love me? And did you serve me? Were you my disciple? Beloved, that's reality. That's the ultimate reality. That's the ultimate and most important reality. One of my seminary professors um, had a painting on his wall that, that I never forgot. It was, a, it was a line of people as long as you could see. Just as long as you could see, it was a line of people. They were all carrying all their stuff. They had, their hands were full of stuff. And they had their eyes fixed on the person right in front of them, right? And they just marched headlong over a cliff and into the abyss. Of course, the message being, I got my stuff and I'm conforming with the herd and I'm just going to go with the herd. I'm just another lemming. I'm going to do what the world says is important. I'm going to value what the world says is important. And they were just marching off this cliff, one right after another, and falling in to the abyss. I think it's an, a, a picture of the insanity of much of the human race focusing on things they don't really need, giving their lives to things that don't really matter, ignoring God at best, or running from Him at worst. I remember, you may remember this in chapter 1, verse 13 of the book we're in, Second Peter. Peter says, I consider it uh, right as long as I'm alive to stir you up by way of reminder. And Peter's been reminding us ever since to keep our eyes on the things that matter. Keep our eyes on what God has said, on God's Word, God's reality, God's truth, because there is no other. Everything else is a hallucination. Everything else is speculation. Chapter 1, you may remember, Peter said it's essential that the Christian remember our supernatural salvation. It is a gift, a sovereign gift from God. He said we need to remember our supernatural sanctification. You remember he made much of this in chapter 1. That we might make our calling and election sure. He says it's essential that we remember the supernatural revelation we have. We have the words of God. No other people have it. We have the words of God. We have the direct revelation of God. I know the world hates it when we talk like that. But the Bible is the Word of God. Chapter 2, Peter says it's essential the Christian be wary of false teachers and pseudo-Christianity that secretly introduce destructive heresies into the church. And as we break into chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Peter, Peter reminds us that he's still reminding us and in verse 2, he says, it's essential that uh, we remember the words of God spoken through the Old Testament prophets, the words of God spoken through the Son, and the words of God spoken through the apostles. Principally, and that's what uh, has really been at issue in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the mockers saying Jesus is not coming back. That's principally what's at issue here. 
And Peter says, don't forget what God has said. He is coming back. Peter says, Jesus is coming back. Verse 7 that we saw two weeks ago. Jesus is coming back and He brings judgment for this world. Verse 7, 2 Peter chapter 3, But the present heavens and earth by His Word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of godly men. So here is one of the ultimate and essential and indispensable realities that every human being needs to understand. You need to be saying it in the world, Jesus is coming and He brings judgment with Him. This is what God has said to us clearly in the last chapter and a half. He says, I'm, I've judged. I judged. Remember the examples He gave us at the beginning of chapter 2? I've judged the angels. I judged the whole world in Noah's day. And I judge Sodom and Gomorrah. God has a precedent. I will judge rebels. I will do it. And in chapter 3, God is saying, I'm going to do it. I've done it. And I will do it. The Bible is crystal clear. We've been making much of this the last few weeks. I know some of these messages have been difficult. But as I told you last week, you know, we just open the Bible and teach it. We don't try to spin it or edit it or make it nice, warm, and fuzzy. Because, I mean, I'm not going to waste your time. and I'm not going to waste my time, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, I want to understand what God is saying. And I want to be a communicator of what God is saying. But the Bible is clear. Jesus is coming. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. It's coming, beloved. Of course, the mockers mock. We saw it two weeks ago, verses 3 and 4. This is what mockers do. Where is the promise of His coming? Why isn't He here? Their argument being no more sophisticated than the fact that Jesus will not return because He hasn't returned. What a foolish, foolish argument. Verse 4, you may remember, it says, "...all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation." But in verse 5, Peter said that these mockers were willfully ignorant. If you look at the King James Version, I like the translation there. It says, they were willfully ignorant of the fact that God has already judged the world once with water and He's going to do it again with fire. So in our text tonight, Peter continues his rebuttal of those who mock the return of Jesus. I just want to reiterate it. This is what the false teachers are saying. Jesus is not coming back. Which, you know, if you, if you take out that doctrinal pillar, Christianity implodes. So Satan knows what he's doing. He wants to attack the truth. He says, Jesus isn't coming back. He's never coming back. It's all a sham. God says through Peter, I am coming back. I'm not on your clock. I'm on my clock. And I am coming back. Verse 8, you heard it read. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter penned this letter 36 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And the mockers were already mocking. 
So, in our day, it's 1,983 years after Jesus' resurrection. So, the mockers have just gained momentum, right? They're still mocking us. They think we're worshiping a dead carpenter from Nazareth. They couldn't be further from the truth. We worship the Creator, Redeemer, resurrected God. And He's coming back. By God's math, how long has He been gone? What does Peter say? By God's math, by God's calendar, how long, is, how long has Jesus been gone? 1.983 days. By God's math. Mock if you want. God's on a different timetable than you. This reveals, obviously, there's some great attributes of God on display in this text tonight. God, as you know, if you profess to be a, a Christian, if you're a Bible believer at all, you know that God is eternal. What? Remember when Moses asked the Lord, what is your name? What did he say? I am that I am. It's simply a reference to His transcendent eternality. I'm just the being who is. I just am. I'm the only God. I, I transcend eternity. I transcend time. I am that I am. He is the, as we were saying in Young Adult Bible Study a couple of weeks ago, God is the uncreated. God is the unbegun. He's utterly unique. He's utterly unique. I, I just want to take a minute. I'm just going to do a brief survey in Scripture of how God talks about His eternality. It's, it's, a, it's an attribute that we don't think about much. But beloved, it's a worship-provoking attribute. Psalm 90, verse 2. God says, I am from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 93, 2. God says, I am from eternity. Isaiah 41, 4. God says, I am the first and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 40, 28. God says, I am the everlasting God. 1 Timothy 1.17 and 6.16 God says, I am the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God who alone possesses immortality and eternal dominion. Revelation 1.8 Revelation 4.8 God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the One who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty God. Revelation 22.13, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Daniel 7.9, God says, I am the Ancient of Days. Isaiah 9.6, He says, I am the Eternal Father. Psalm 9.7, He says, I shall endure forever. Job 36.26, God says, the number of my years cannot be discovered. Beloved, our God is eternal. He's not on your timetable. You know, I, I get a lot of questions from people, you know, and I understand the questions. Where's God? Why, why isn't God showing up? You know, I'm in this hard place. Why doesn't God show up? Well, guess what? <laughs> not only is He not on your timetable, His timetable's better. You know, I know you've heard this said a million times. God's never late, right? If you don't know this about Him, you know, you haven't walked very long with Him. God's never late. Sometimes it seems like He is because we're, you know, so self-absorbed, but He's never late. 
Jehovah God works everything according to His good pleasure. And He shows up at the perfect hour every single time. One theologian, with regard to His eternality, one theologian said, God is from the beginning of the beginnings which never began. You got it? You understand it? Of course you don't. It transcends your mind. It's supposed to transcend your mind. You're supposed to worship my great, great, awesome, eternal Father God. There's nobody like Him. Beloved, we should be worshiping. Hebrews 10.37, and I'll move on, but let me just share that verse with you quickly. For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come, and He will not delay. Mock if you want, He's coming. He will split the sky. And every eye will see Him and every knee will bow. Even the damned will bow before King Jesus. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter's second rebuttal here is an argument from God's character. His first argument was about God's nature. He's eternal. His second argument is from God's character. He is a patient God. He is a long-suffering God. I, I did a brief survey and I found four or five places. Well, let me just give you a couple of verses. Exodus 34.6, The Lord is slow to anger. Numbers 4.18, The Lord is slow to anger. Psalm 86.15 The Lord is slow to anger. Psalm 145.8 The Lord is slow to anger. If you actually look at the King James Version of Romans 15.5 God is called the God of patience. Praise the Lord. Amen? Praise the Lord. He's a God of patience because I need every bit of patience God has. And why is God patient? Because He's merciful. Another attribute. He's eternal. He's patient. And He's merciful. Of uh, His mercy, the Bible says, it is great. 1 Kings 3.6 It is abundant. Psalm 86.5 It is tender. Luke 1.78 It is from everlasting to everlasting upon, upon them that fear Him. Psalm 103.17 And I love Psalm 145. You heard me read it earlier. His mercies are over all His works. What a great God of mercy. These men are mocking that Jesus hasn't come. They're mocking Him because He's patient and merciful. Beloved, Jesus has not yet returned because He has lost interest or He is bored or He is loitering. Jesus has not returned because He is patient. He is slow to anger and He is a merciful God. Romans 2, 4, and 5. This will be the fourth time I've read this verse to you in this series, but it just keeps popping, popping, popping up. It's just obvious. It's the perfect commentary on this verse, so I had to read it again. Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's why... That's why he tarries, man. That's why he tarries. 
But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I know you've heard me say this many times, but if a man lands in hell, it is not because God is not patient and merciful. It's because that man is stubborn and unrepentant. We've talked about that some in the last several months. God is patient and merciful, but He is also holy and just. As we talked about several weeks ago, all of God does all that God does. Some people think that God can't judge because He's a God of love. They think, well, He's constrained by His love. Beloved, read your Bible. (laughs) You know, His wrath is not constrained by His love. As we talked about a few weeks ago. There is a divine symmetry to all that God does. There is a divine equilibrium, a divine balance, a divine portionality. God's wrath is not constrained by His mercy and His love. Some, because of verse 9 here, the words that it uses, some mistakenly, mistakenly try to build a universal universalist theology out of this verse saying because God doesn't wish for any to perish none will perish and because God wishes for all to come to repentance all will come to repentance of course this is not a sound interpretation of the verse here if for no other reason simply because as I often tell you the Bible interprets the Bible if we try to make this a universalist uh, statement we've just destroyed large sections of Scripture. This is clearly not what the text means. So, who is God patient toward? While there's a bit of a theological dust-up here, some of you may be familiar with it, over this verse regarding exactly who God is patient toward toward here in verse 9. In context, it is clear that Peter is talking about the people of God. He's talking about the people of God. If you look in verse 8, he addresses... Look what he says in verse 8. He addresses the beloved. If you go down in your Bible, your doodad, you'll see in verse 14, he's still talking about the beloved. You may remember how he opened the book. Chapter 1, verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter's talking to the people of God. He's talking to the elect. I was in my background reading um, this week. I, I, MacArthur says it very cleverly. Let me, let me just, let me just you, you pro- it's probably going to go over your head. You're not going to be able to process this, but I love the way he says it. He says, talking about the... Uh, Uh, The words here, you and any and all. He says the any is the you, and the all is the any, and the all and the any are the you. And you are the believer to whom he writes. I think, although confusing, I think that is accurate. Interestingly enough, one thing I discovered in my studies this week, if you go down to verse 15, you actually see that with regard to the patience of our Lord, it's, it's regarded as salvation. When God exercises patience, it's equivalent 
at least in regard to the elect, to salvation. While I am convinced that verse 9 is clearly talking about the decretive will of God, we talked about this at uh, Young Adult Bible Study, we're getting into some deep waters, the decretive will of God regarding the elect, I readily agree that we can get an accurate sense of God's dispositional will toward all men in this verse. You guys know the great text, Matthew 5, 45, causing... God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Ezekiel 33.11 I gave to you a few weeks ago. We hear the dispositional will of God in His words through the prophet Ezekiel. He says this, God says, As I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? I'm just trying, what I'm trying to do is flesh out what's being said here in verse 9. And of course, I shared this with you a few weeks ago too. Matthew 23, 37. We hear the dispositional heart of God again in the words of Jesus. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to hear. How often I wanted to gather you uh, together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. I want to say it again. If a man lands in hell, it's not because God is not patient and merciful. It's because that man is unrepentant and stubborn. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Actually, if you look at the Hebrew there, the, the, the literal rendering is, I'll have no God. This is what the fool says. I'll have no God over me. And we know that all sin ultimately is a declaration of independence, right? I'll do what I want. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care. I'll do what I want. I do whatever I want. Isn't that the mantra of the modern world? I do what I want. I don't care what God or anyone else says. It's Romans 3.10. There is none who seek for God. Beloved, we need to get this straight. If God doesn't seek us, we all go to hell. Do you understand that? But because He is who He is, and He has sought for us, it is God's initiative. Salvation is God's great, sovereign initiative. <clears throat> of course, the irony here is that those mockers that Peter's addressing, they're turning God's long-suffering patience into an argument against His coming. This is what rebellious men always do. They twist the nature of God into an accusation against God. I hear this a lot in my line of work. You know, people, and honest questions are okay. I, I want to encourage you, honest questions are okay. But I talk to a lot of people who have this adversarial relationship toward the Bible. And they're always looking for an accusation against God. They always want to impugn His character. They will surely reap from God what they have sown against Him. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavenly, 
the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. But the day of the Lord will come. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. Did you know that 23 of the 27 New Testament books talks about the coming of Jesus? He's coming. I challenged you a week or two ago. Be in the world telling people He's coming. Did you know Jesus is coming? That'll start a conversation. Or as I said a few weeks, or end a conversation. <laughs> Jesus is coming back! He's coming back. Beloved, we need to be sharing this truth. Even if we get mocked. How, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Mockers mock. That's what mockers do. Mock me if you want. I'll love you enough to share the truth with you. Mock me if you want. So God's patience will be exhausted ultimately and His wrath will be vented. There's this term here in verse 10, the day of the Lord. It's a technical term for the coming of Jesus in judgment. The Old Testament is replete with references to this. You go into the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, a few. I can remember uh, a long time ago in a teaching exercise I had, I had to uh, summarize the book of Joel. I had to teach the book of Joel in an hour, which is like impossible, of course. But I remembered how I was struck by the vivid description of God's wrath that will come. Let me just give you a few words from the book of Joel. Wailing, mourning, weeping, ruin, destruction, lamenting, desolation, trembling, darkness, gloom, and anguish. Paul tells the Thessalonians that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Beloved, I know this is a hard message. I know most of the church doesn't preach it anymore. But we'll preach it in this little garage. We're going to preach it in the garage. If it's in the Bible, we're going to preach it in the garage. You know, I'm more afraid, I have more fear of God than I have of you. And I think that's a healthy thing for a preacher. You know, I have to give an accounting to Him. <laughs> and I want to be able to say, Lord, I... I said the truth as well as I could say it. That's my job, beloved. I know these are hard texts that we've been in the last few weeks. But beloved, it's the Word of God. Do you care what God says? Do you want to know what God says? Do you want to be prepared to communicate what God says? Then you have to know it. Did you notice that the day will come like a thief? What does that mean? Obviously, meaning that it will come suddenly and unexpectedly. It'll just happen. He'll just split the sky. As the verse 10 ends there, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with 
Intense heat and the earth will be burned up. That Almost the exact same verbiage is, is in uh, verse 12. If you look down in verse 12 with regard to the burning up of the heavens and the earth, I don't know how God's going to do this. There are, you know, people speculate about all kinds of things. I personally believe that it, I think it has something to do with the fact that of what Hebrews 1 3 says, that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. Right? He's upholding all things by the word of his power. I think Jesus will simply stop upholding all things by the word of his power. He'll stop holding that nucleus together. And what scientists call the strong force. I'm not sure. Chris maybe could help. But the strong force, it's just there. It's the strong force. The, the gravitational force. The weak force. What's the other one? The, mag, mag, uh, the electromagnetic force. We have names for these. You want me to tell you what it is? It's King Jesus. Holding the world together. And when he lets it go, in my mind, it'll probably be something like uh, just a nuclear event. This is what I think Peter's talking about. Even the base elements of creation will melt with intense heat. I had fun. I had fun this week. I went in, I looked at some of the science stuff, and I don't know what I'm talking about, obviously. But it's still fun, you know, the dark energy and the quantum mechanics and the antiparticles and the gluons and the protons and the neutrons and the electrons and the quarks and the antiquarks. And Jesus just stops upholding them. And beloved, there'll be a roar and the elements will burn. All creation will burn with a roar. That's my view on the matter. Verses 11 and 12, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct, looking for and hastening the day, uh, hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens, here we go again, will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with Intense heat. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 11. Since everything here today might well be gone tomorrow, do you see how essential it is that you live like a Christian? He actually says that you live a holy life. Do you see the, 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 the necessity of it? Which brings us back, I think, to the 19th century expedition to the North Pole. These guys were carrying all kinds of junk they didn't need. It wasn't important. It wasn't essential. It wasn't necessary. How many of you and I'm doing an inventory myself, or doing the same thing. You've got your priorities on things. It does not matter, ultimately. It doesn't matter. Are you letting the minutia steal your life? Peter says, I am writing to remind you of the essential things. Beloved, are you wrapped up and in love and consumed with the essential things, the things of Jesus? I think this is one of the undercurrents of, of 2 Peter. God is exhorting us to pay attention to the things that matter. And Jesus says, in light of my return, in light of the coming judgment, how should you then live? He's asking. Actually, He's not asking. If you look at the text, it's not a question. 
It's an exclamation. The exclamation's at the end of verse 12. If you look at the text. It's not a question. God is saying, in light of who I am, in light of what I said to you, how should you then live? Exclamation point. How excellent should your life be? Exclamation point. That's really the point. You call yourself a Christian, how excellent should your life be? You want to mind? How excellent should your life be in righteousness and godliness? How excellent should it be, beloved? That's really the point of the text. You know this. We're, if you, you know your Bible. We're called to be aliens. We're called to be different. God says we're a peculiar people. We're supposed to smell like God. We belong to God. We're God's people. God has called us to live like Hebrews 11, men and women. You remember how they lived? They lived by faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.16, desiring a better country, that is a heavenly one, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Beloved, are you looking at heaven? You know, this is something that comes up. I it doesn't matter what book I preach, it comes up. Are you looking at heaven? That's supposed to be your preoccupation. I understand we have subordinate obligations and responsibilities your, your subordinate obligations and responsibilities are informed by the fact that you're looking at heaven. You're looking at the Bema seat. You're looking at the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it informs every single aspect of your life. You remember how the Holy Spirit said it in 1 John 3 and 1 John 2. He said, everyone who has this hope, that is the hope of Jesus coming, Fixes on him, uh, fixed on Him, purifies Himself, that we may have confidence and not shrink away at His coming. A Christ-centric worldview unavoidably drives you deeper into holiness. If you're not being driven into holiness and righteousness, you're not looking at God. Now you may be religious, but that's two separate things. Religion is just religion. I'm talking about biblical Christianity. I'm talking about knowing Jesus Christ. I'm talking about walking with Him. I'm talking about being in a relationship with Him. That's really what we're always talking about in Scripture. As we always say, if it's real on the inside, it will spill out. On the outside, it means I'm always dealing with my sin. I love to counsel people. You know, people who come to me with a burden about sin. You know what? i got a burden about my own sin. But I love when people come to me, man, and I just encourage them, man. I say, you keep fighting. You keep praying. You keep surrendering to the Holy Spirit. You keep confessing. You keep forsaking. You keep fighting the sin in your life. You keep cooperating with the Holy Spirit in your own sanctification. Jesus says, I'm coming back and I'm bringing judgment with me. How then should you live, Christian? Do you believe He's coming back? Do you live like you believe He's coming back? I think these are some of the implications of what we're seeing. So the Christian has an eager expectation and desire for the day of God. Verse 12, the day of God. This is different than the day of the Lord. The day of God carries with it the emphasis for the believer. An eternity of joy with God. That's the day of God. 
The day of the Lord is when Jesus returns in judgment. That's the emphasis of the day of the Lord. And of course, you can get uh, some good insights from the book of Revelation on both. Let me finish. Verse 13, But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As I began to study this verse, I realized I need a whole separate sermon for it. And so, free of charge, I'm going to insert next week a free sermon on heaven. Free of charge. And I love to preach on heaven. (laughs) I know that we don't hear a lot of preaching on heaven anymore. But, uh, yeah, I love, to, I love to preach on heaven. So a sermon that will really underscore the connection between verse 13 and verse 14. The object of our anticipation, verse 13, that Jesus is coming back. He has prepared a place for us and we will live with Him in the new heaven and the new earth. And the effect of our anticipation, verse 14, if you go look at verse 14, that we will be diligent in the pursuit of Godliness. You know, beloved, don't you? Just a teaser, you know we're, we're not going to be naked cherubs playing harps on clouds. You know that, right? We're not going to be in an, in an eternal church service. You know that, right? It's going to be awesome. I want to recommend a book. It's, it's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Um, you should read it. But we're not, you know, we're going to employ our unique gifts, abilities, and talents for all eternity, serving King Jesus in the ruling and reigning, uh, ruling and reigning an infinite physical cosmos. We will be physical. We will be in a physical heaven and earth. God's going to redeem the physical cosmos, and we will exercise dominion over it under the sovereign authority of Jesus. Some of you have been around long enough, you've heard me say this. I, you know, it's what Peter Pan says, and I don't often quote Peter Pan. But who knows what Peter Pan says in relation to this topic? It would be hard for you to know. Peter Pan says, it will be an awfully big adventure to die. Yes, for the Christian, life will have just begun in earnest. Life will have just begun in earnest when we die as we go to be with the Lord forever. So, are you like the men on that 19th century expedition to the North Pole, preoccupied and burdened down with things that don't matter? Planning wrong, preparing wrong, thinking wrong, living wrong? Are you like the people in that painting uh, that hangs in my seminary professor's office? Are you just accumulating stuff and, and following the herd mindlessly? Or are you hearing what God is saying? Are you willing to focus on the things that are essential? Which is Jesus Christ. Beloved, I want to say to you that stuff is not meaning. Money is not meaning. Pleasure is not meaning. Success is not meaning. Security is not meaning. A big portfolio is not meaning. Knowing Christ is meaning. And John Piper is right. Human life is all about Jesus. Not just a little bit. Ultimately, it's all about Him. 
And if you're not living your life in that context, beloved, you've got some work to do. All of human life is about Jesus Christ. It's what Second Peter is all about. Peter's reminding, reminding us what really matters, what's really important, what's really essential, what's indispensable in our lives. His name is Jesus. And oh yes, He says He's coming back. So let me close with Revelation 22, 12-13. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly and My reward is with Me to render to every man according to what He has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Beloved, if you believe that, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise You. We praise You for Your Word. Thank You, Father, that You speak truth to us. Thank You that You always challenge us. Thank You that You convict us of our sin. But Father, what Your holiness has required, Your grace has supplied. His name is Jesus, and we worship Him. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room could confess with with me that we give ourselves to You utterly, wholly, completely. We give ourselves to You. We are Your people. We believe Your Word. We will live in light of it. Father, help us not to become encumbered with non-essentials. Things that don't matter at all. May we be consumed by the person of Jesus. Have Your way with us, God, we pray. Turn us into disciples. Help us as we continue to fight the sin in our lives. Hurry our sanctification along, Holy Spirit, we pray. And we look forward to a billion eternities with You, Lord. In an unspeakably glorious new heavens and new earth. We give all praise, glory, and honor to the name of Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.